Would you turn to Colossians chapter 2? Colossians 2, and we're going to be going through verses 8 to 10 this morning. So we're going through the book of Colossians. Those of us uh, who are uh, first time came here, uh, coming here today, we're going through the book of Colossians verse by verse. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, and the word of God reads, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. This passage before us is the start of a new section in his book. It's actually the heart of the epistle. And it runs from verse 8 all the way down to verse 23, which is the end of this chapter. And in this section, this heart of the epistle, it addresses the main reason why Paul um, picked up uh, a further and uh, papyrus uh, sheet, if you like, and penned down this letter. This is the main reason why he wrote what he wrote. He here he deals directly with the issues that the church was facing at that time. Now, what are those issues? Well, all of them can be summed up in that one word. It was an early version of a heresy called Gnosticism. And Satan was about to wage a deadly attack on Christianity using this heresy. And he was gathering um, his army together of false teachers. And he was in the process of refining this heresy. He was strengthening it. And sure enough, um, this heresy has become one of the most ferocious, diabolic attack that the early church had to endure. And you can read about this heresy in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to chapter 3 or 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. The entire 1 John epistle is dedicated to address this heresy. Now Gnosticism was here to stay for about three to four centuries. And not only did the early church bleed severely because of this heresy, but the devastating effect of, of it can even be felt today in many, many churches. This snake, if you like, of Gnosticism can camouflage in many different colors and transform into many shapes and blend in with many kind of cultures. And its venom is very toxic. It's designed to lure the gullible, the ignorant Christians. And what was this heresy about? What made it so dangerous? 
Well, you could say that the demon of this Gnosticism had four horns. It's a snake with four heads, if you like. And Paul, in this section, addressed them all. Let me give you an overview of all those four elements that constituted this early version of Gnosticism. You've got philosophy from verse 8 to verse 15 where it would say, Jesus is not enough. You need human wisdom over and above the word of God. And then legalism from verses 16 to 17, where it says that Jesus is not enough. You want to be saved? You want to grow in holiness? Well, you need to follow man-made rituals and tradition that God never prescribed. And number three, mysticism, verses 18 to 19. Again, Jesus is not enough. You need other man-made means to experience God, that sense of union with God apart from Jesus Christ. And in number four, asceticism, verses 20 to 23. Jesus is not enough. You know what you need. You need to inflict yourselves. You need to make sure you don't eat certain food and wear very uncomfortable clothes and sleep on hard surface so somehow God would look down upon you and feel sorry for you and that way you would be purified. Well, very well, this sets up the scene And in summary, the Colossian church was about to be seduced by a heresy with four major components blended together, and they do overlap each other. And what is the main objective? It was very and absolutely clear. It's very simple. Undermine the sufficiency of Christ and the clear teaching of the Word of God. What is it? Again, undermining the sufficiency of Christ and the clear teaching of God's Word. Undermining the sufficiency of Christ and the clear teaching of God's Word. Now, why am I repeating it? I'm repeating it because isn't this still the same objective of the devil in today's culture? There is nothing new under the sun. The devil doesn't have many tricks up his sleeve. But how deadly, how deadly, how devastating is this ideology? Brothers, it really doesn't matter what we do. If we allow the devil to smudge the image of Christ that is reflected in the Word of God, if we allow him to undermine the authority of the Word, It doesn't matter what else we do. He's got us by his death grip. How important is it? Even 2,000 years later, yet we still have to guard ourselves. Watch God against this scheme of the devil. So what we're going to do today is that we're going to focus first on that first element, that philosophy of man. This is the the first um, component, if you like, of Gnosticism. The outline, the three points. Number one, the warning. 
Number two, the heresy. And number three, the antidote. The warning. So we start with verse eight. It says, see to it. In other words, watch out. And if you look closely to to this verb, you will find that even in the Greek, it's imperative, present tense. In other words, always keep your antenna up and your eyes open. Never go to sleep. Be on high alert. Why? You're in a very dangerous position. Satan, your enemy, has you in mind. And, and there is, there is that dust storm approaching and stirred up by, by the galloping horses of the false teachers headed your way. Paul here is blowing a trumpet of warning for the Colossians to be on, on high alert. And may I say that this warning is echoed through the corridor of history and we can hear the siren even today. In our own culture, brothers, we need to know this, that no generation is exempted. Satan never gets tired from his diabolic attack against the church of Jesus Christ. So how does Satan attack the church? We're continuing on in verse 8, see to it that no one, what is this no one referring to? It's referring to those false teachers. That is Satan's biggest and sharpest sword throughout history. The biggest threat to every church throughout throughout history is not from the outside, it is from the inside. If persecution comes along, you know what persecution does, right? It purifies the church, it strengthens the church. It draws the church even closer to to Christ. But when false teachers come, infiltrate the church, this is how you bring down any church. So we must continue to be in the lookout. Now what does Paul do here? He continues on with the military imagery that he began with in verse 5. If you remember last time, we looked at these military words that Paul was using where he would call upon us to have this formation and together be united to stand against the diabolic attacks of those false teachers. And here again, he basically says, watch out from those false teachers. How? Why? What will they do? Look what he says. He takes you captive, literally meaning to kidnap you, to carry you hostage as a spoil of war. So what Paul has in mind here and what he's saying is, watch out, there are warriors of the dark army and their mission is absolutely clear and it is to capture as many souls as they can as prisoners of war, enslaving them in the prison of doubt, binding them into those chains of of confusion. That's their real mission. And do you know something? Do you know, let me tell you this, you may not know this, 
Every single book in the New Testament gives clear warning against false teachers. I don't know of any book that does not speak of that. Let let me give you just several examples, but very quickly so we can move on. Matthew 7.15. Jesus says what? Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Philippians 3.2. Beware of the dogs. Second Peter 3.17, be on your guard. So I have to pause here and warn you, brothers. Do you know one of the most agonizing feeling I have, I want to share this with you, is when Christians stare at false teaching. And they say, I I, I just don't want to judge. I I, I don't want to come across as harsh and judgmental. You know what? Like, you know, I I might just even overlook what has been taught. I just want to worship Jesus. What do you mean? Do you know what these Christians are doing? They are sinning. They are being disobedient to the clear, direct commands that we are instructed to obey. Watch out. Beware. Brothers, would we stare at a venomous snake and and play dead fish? Would we do that? Of course not. Imagine imagine if a, a terrorist would come into this building with a sword in his hand. Would we say, oh, I don't want to judge? Would we cover our eyes and say, oh, look, you know, I'm just here to worship Jesus? No, we wouldn't, right? Probably out of fear of death or something, somebody eventually is going to have to scream and say, watch out, there's a terrorist in the building, right? How much all the more should we fear those who want to plunge a sword into the heart of Christian lives. So what Paul commands the Colossians here, I stand upon God's word and I command you all to watch out from false teachers. Watch out. It's everywhere. You turn on the TV, you go to uni, you, you, you listen to the radio. There are false teaching everywhere. Watch out. Now, what specifically the false teaching that Paul has in mind? We'll come to the second point, the heresy. The heresy. What is the heresy? We're continuing on and it says, takes you captive through philosophy. Philosophy. This word philosophy, it's a compound word. It's made up of two words. Philo, you know the word philo. Philanthropy, it means love. Sophie, it's derived from the word Sophia, which means wisdom. So philosophy basically means love of or pursuit of wisdom. Now there is something, there is nothing wrong with pursuing wisdom in and of itself. In verse chapter 1, verse 9, in fact, Paul's prayer is 
that we are to be filled with all spiritual wisdom. So what we need to understand so far is that it is not so much a pursuit of wisdom that is the problem. It is more specifically the pursuit of human wisdom. That is the kind of philosophy that was in Paul's mind. Pursuit of human wisdom. Now what does that mean? How do we define philosophy? Well, philosophy is defined this way. It's man's effort to make sense of reality apart from Jesus Christ. Man's effort to make sense of reality apart from Jesus Christ. Or you can say pursuing wisdom that does not submit to Jesus or his teaching. How do we know this? Where do we get that from? You don't want anybody, not even myself, to just come up with his own definition of it. It has to be biblical. So how do we find that in the scripture? Well, in that same verse, philosophy, pursuit of wisdom, and in that same verse at the very end, it says, rather than according to Christ. Or in other words, not according to Christ. So philosophy can be explained this way again. It's a pursuit of wisdom apart from Jesus Christ. That's the kind of wisdom that Paul has in mind. It's the wisdom that does not pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ. It's man's opinion, speculation about life and morality. Going back 300 years before Jesus, you know, we have... The Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, these were the, some of the most genius and the most influential philosophers of all time. And these philosophers, they tried to answer the basic questions of life apart from God's word. Questions. Questions like what? Questions like, what is the goal of life? How do we achieve it? What is happiness? What is the meaning of life? How do we get rid of guilt that we feel? How do we live? What is ethics? How to be fulfilled? All of this and many more. What else were they really getting involved in? Well, they also believe that there is such thing as a powerful God that rules the universe. That's great. And we know that they believed such thing because in the book of Acts, um, chapter 17, when Paul went to Athens, there was the unknown God. But what was uh, their method to get to know this unknown God? Well, they relied purely on rational thinking and their own speculation to know this unknown God. That's philosophy. That is philosophy. Now, what does the scripture say about this? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 19 says, For the wisdom of this world... Again, philosophy is foolishness before God. 1 Corinthians 1.19 says, For it is written, I, that's God, Yahweh speaking here, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. 
and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Verse 20, where is the wise man? Meaning, where is the philosopher? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Meaning, where is Socrates? Where is Plato? Where is Aristotle? Where are the professors of this age? And God is looking down and he's kind of seeing and he's, I can't see them. Where are they? They're meaningless. They are to God insignificant. Can't find them. And continuing on, it says, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? To God, they're fools. Why? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, through philosophy, did not come to know God. You cannot know God by your own rational thinking. Never. How come? The world, with all of its brain power, all of its intelligence remain to be finite. And whatever mental capacity they have, it's all tainted with sin. Now, how can a finite, sinful, poor creature, helpless creature, could ever reach out and know the infinitely holy God on his own? And God says they're fools. Fools. It won't happen. They can never reach out and know the God of the Bible. Imagine a, a little child would pick up an, a bucket and goes to the beach. He would have a better chance to fill up that little bucket with the entire ocean than for the world through philosophy to get to know God. Fools. That's what the Bible says. Now back to our text, and let's continue. What does Paul call philosophy? He calls it this, empty deception. Empty. It's vain. Barren tree, useless, junk. Empty deception. It's, it's like a beautiful wrapping of a, of a gift box. You open it and it's got nothing in it. In other words, to rely on human wisdom. And you say, wow, this is so clever. You, you, you must be very intelligent to come up with this. What an amazing way to respond to circumstances. Wow, this is good. This is very smart way of looking into it. And then you begin to choose to live your life according to what those clever people are teaching you apart from Jesus Christ. And Paul looks at you and would say, you've been duped. You've been trying to draw water out of an empty well just because the bucket looks appealing to you. Watch out. Watch out. No matter how clever, 
man's ideology seemed to be, apart from God, it is a trap. Don't buy into it. It won't help you. What it will do is it will only enslave you. Philosophy of man. Okay, well, this is too high level. What, what does that mean? We need to hear some examples. We need to be challenged. We need to understand how this affects us in everyday life. I want to give you an example. But don't shoot the messenger. I'm only telling you what the Bible says. Take psychology, for example. <clears throat> Modern psychology. Do you realize that psychology <clears throat> finds its roots all the way back to the ancient philosophy? Ah, oh, you'd say... What are you talking about? What do you mean? I mean, don't you know that philosophy is one thing and psychology is another thing? Well, I'm not so sure about that. Sure, if we allow the world to come up with their own technical term of what psychology is, which probably they came up with it last century, last couple of centuries, that's different, but if we allow the scripture to define philosophy for us, and we just did, what would it be? Philosophy. Again, it is human wisdom that is not rooted in Christ. It does not pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ, right? Isn't this precisely what psychology is? Human wisdom that is not submitting to Jesus Christ, right? Human wisdom, that does not submit to Jesus Christ. You know, according to the Australian Institute of Health Well and Welfare, 3.4 million Australian saw psychologists just last year. $11.6 billion was spent on treatment every year, according to that website. Tell me if you know one person that has seen this modern philosopher and got cured. Millions, millions flock to see those kind of people and not one gets cured. How come? I'll tell you how come. Because human wisdom is blinded to man's biggest problem. What is man's biggest problem? Sin. Sin is man's biggest problem. And this is the primary reason we have conflicts. And in most cases, they overlook it. Why? Because they don't want to offend their customers. Otherwise, the patients will leave and go to somebody else and the psychologist would be out of business and nobody wants to lose his job, right? And even if they were honest enough to identify sin, what power do they have to eliminate it? Sir, um, I, I believe your hatred to your spouse, your arrogance and your pride is ruining your marriage. 
Sir, I believe it's your defiance to God is leading you to be miserable. Would they say that? And even if they did, you would say, oh, great, great that you identified this. Cure me now. I need to be cured from this. I want to be healed. Please tell me how do I replace my arrogance and pride with humility. Tell me. Show me how. Um, take this drug. It will solve all your problems. Right. Right. And what Paul is saying here is that the quest for wisdom apart from God, philosophy with all flavors and colors are nothing more than empty deception, vain speculation. Paul gives the foundation that the philosophy of man is built on, and he continues on, and he says, according to the tradition of men. According to the tradition of men, philosophy stands polar opposite to Jesus Christ. They don't mix. They don't mix like do- like water and oil. It's not founded in Jesus Christ. Modern philosophy, just like the old philosophy, that founded on man's tradition. What does that mean? It means this. People will come and they would say, "Don't you understand? Are you ignorant? Don't you study history? And now we have evolved." Right? Our wisdom has been getting refined for thousands of years and we stand upon the shoulders of the most intelligent professors, world-leading, renowned sociologists, psychologists, philosophers, men and women dedicated all their lives for us to reach this zenith of enlightenment. We built universities and we did this and we did that. Listen, when we put our heads together, there's nothing that we wouldn't be able to achieve. That's how they speak. Humanism, it's called. Humanism. Man-centered talk. Look, look at what we have accomplished so far. Layers upon layers of complexity of whatever, knowledge, ideas, so that we can get to tell you how to live your life. That's man's tradition. Very well. Then Paul comes back and he says, okay, this is what they say, this is what they think, but let me tell you, how, how God views this. He continues on and he says, according to the elementary principles of the world. Please note, this is not another foundation just because this is according. No, there's no word and there. It's not this and. There's no foundation um, according to um, man's tradition and according to the elementary principles of the world. No, it is just simply elementary principles of the world. In other words, 
This is the lens through which God sees this. How does God see philosophy? Elementary principles of the world. What does this mean? Elementary principles is like a a row of alphabet. A, B, C. Meaning, it's, it's too primitive. It's very simplistic. It's nothing. It's like you, you're completing a master degree of art, let's say, and a time has come to hand in your thesis, and rather than writing a, a well-written paper, you, you, you just hand in a painting of a, a man made up of a, a circle and sticks, and that becomes your thesis. That's what he's saying. Elementary principles of the world. Tradition of man is just shallow. There's no depth to it. And yes, you get the, the biggest and the greatest and the most influential people stand up and they, and they clap and they applaud and they praise what they have achieved. Paul says it's, it's actually stupid. That's what he's trying to say. It's like a a man who wears a formal gown and academic cap, you know, like as if he's a great scholar, but he's really attending kindergarten. He's just, he knows nothing of what he's talking about. And it's true. I mean, you can assess this in real life and you, you say, okay, let's see this. Let's see how this is panning out. How much closer are we to world peace than at the time of Paul. How much have we resolved from the world hunger and crime and poverty by by this worldly wisdom? And we say, sure, yep, we get that, that the world does say, and there is certain complexity that can tell us that they've reached uh, Mount Everest of psychology, but what a second, people are still Selfish as they were 2,000 years ago. Divorce rate is through the roof. That's even if people get married in the first place. Oh, we have far more education than ever before. And you still don't know how to define a woman? I mean, what's that? You have more universities, you have more schools, more books and more library shelves. We're not morally any better. Depression is everywhere. In a nutshell, human wisdom evolved throughout time. But man hasn't changed. And you boil down evolution and you find that all it is is just a new ways invented by man and how to really indulge in evil. Really. That's the heresy, philosophy. What is the antidote to philosophy? What is the alternative? The only answer is the fullness of Christ. This is the antidote. 
the fullness of Christ? How do we ensure that we're not going to get sucked in by worldly philosophy? The fullness of Christ. So yes, human wisdom is compelling, to, especially to the thinkers. Compelling. It has excellent system of reason. Very logical. We give them that. And very, very smart people are leading this philosophy. And that pressure is to comply is, is very powerful. But the rock on which philosophy would be shattered, crushed, none other but Jesus Christ. He is in every way the antidote to this deception of Satan. So, Paul says in verse 9, let's continue. For in him, who him? Jesus. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And if you want to contrast again, the world would look at Jesus and say, what is this? So foolish. There is a naked carpenter on the cross, crucified by his own people as the most wicked criminal. Yes, but the fact of the matter is, and Paul says, in him all the fullness of deity dwells. What does this mean? In a nutshell, it just means he's truly God. In bodily form, truly man. Now, just to give you a little background again and help you understand why Paul wrote what he wrote, is that one of the biggest questions that those philosophers at that time struggled to come up with an answer for is evil. Where did evil come from in this world? Well, it can't be God who created the world because the world is evil now. It can't be God who created this evil world. Why? Because God is sinless. How do we answer this? Ah, we got it. Speculation. So what was the speculation? Well, they came up with this satanic idea. A God must have created a good angel. And this good angel created another but lesser good angel. And this lesser good angel created another lesser good and so on and so forth. And in that ladder from good to evil, once you reach the very bottom of the last angel that was created, evil angel, then that evil angel created the world. So, this Jesus that you're worshipping, yes, continue to worship him. Deception. Continue. But this Jesus that you're worshipping, you need to know. He's just an angel. Good angel. Empty deception. Oh, and he can't be um, a physical being. When Jesus, when we talk about Jesus, it's, it's more of a spiritual kind of Jesus. Not physical. Why? Because they also believe that all physical matter is evil. So this Jesus must have been not God, but a good angel. And that good angel must have not had physical body. 
This was the product of philosophy, ideology that was cooked in hell. And Paul is saying here, all the fullness of deity dwells. All the fullness of deity dwells in Christ. Paul is not saying that Jesus is godly. It's not that Jesus leads to God. It's not that Jesus has godly virtues. It's that Jesus is God. All the fullness, not just fullness, but all the fullness of deity dwells. This means that Jesus is all powerful. Jesus is all knowing. Jesus is everywhere. That's why in the scripture, it tells us that people pray to Jesus. They worship Jesus. They glorify Jesus. Right? This is why Jesus can do only what God can do. He can forgive sins. He can raise himself from the dead. He will judge the world. He will punish evildoers. He must have been God. Because who else can bear infinite wrath for infinite sin that was committed against an infinitely holy God, but God-man, Jesus Christ? And Paul continues, it's not only that he is God, but he's also man. This is why he says he dwells, dwells in bodily form. And please note, it's not was dwelling, it is, it is right now dwells. Present tense, implying that Jesus remains to be in a bodily form. Jesus is not a spiritual being only, as per se. He is a physical being. He is the only person with a physical glorified body in heaven right now. And he doesn't share that fullness with other angels. It's not like an angel created another angel. No. He has it all. He claims the fullness in his own physical body. Every last fullness of God is in Christ. Not only that. What, a, what, a, what is the relationship between him and all other angels? Look at verse 10, the last bit of verse 10. It says, and he is the head of, over all rule and authority, which means all angels. The good, the bad, and the ugly. All of them prostrate before Jesus. Okay, very well. As we come to the end and we want to, to land the plane, we want to come and ask this vital question. What is the point of all of these? What is the point of all of that? Well, I left... For me, I think best for last, verse 10. In the first part it says, And in him you have been made complete. You are fulfilled. Made complete meaning fulfilled in him. You are 
satisfied in Him. That's the whole point. The one that is able to fulfill you is Jesus Christ. Not philosophy, not the wisdom of man. You don't need to go treasure hunting for answers of life. You just need Christ. What is the point of all of this? Well, what need do we have that is not fulfilled in Christ? You know when we pursue worldly philosophy, we're trying to chase after something that, that can never give us what we can only find in Christ. Do you need to reach to God and to know God and to enjoy God? You know what we have to do? You have to come to the end of your logic, your reason. You have to admit that you cannot do it with your own mind apart from Jesus Christ. You have to confess that your reason, your logic, your knowledge is insufficient to lead you to know God. Well, what do I do? How do I know God? Believe and accept the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Become like a little child and just say, I rest in Christ. I rest in Christ. Oh, well, that's intellectual suicide. You, you can't tell me. I can't use my brain. Use your brain when you come to Christ. Let it pledge its legion to Jesus Christ. Why? Because to know Christ... You have come to know the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells. In a bodily form, meaning he is human as he is God, which means he is accessible. You can relate to him in such a way that without him, there is no way you could relate to the infinite God apart from him. Do you need your life questions answered most accurately. Well, that's what you do. You stop pursuing worldly wisdom. What man tells you. What your goal in life is. Stop doing that. And begin to pursue Christ. Don't. Don't go to the web and Google, how do I know my goal in life? Go to the scripture and search the scripture. Google the scripture. Don't Google the web. How do you answer all those questions that philosophers attempted many times throughout history to answer? Well, let me tell you something very simple. What a beautiful thing to know this. All those questions and many more that we spoke about are answered in one person, and that is Jesus Christ. What is the goal of life? 
to glorify Christ by enjoying Him forever. How do I achieve this? We looked at it last time. You receive Christ and you walk in Him. What is happiness? Happiness? Let me tell you what happiness is. Happiness is to realize that you're not your own. But you belong body and soul in life and in death to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is really happiness. How do I get rid of guilt? How? Christ and Christ alone. Who is our sin bearer, our guilt bearer before a holy God. Your flesh reminds you of your weakness. Satan comes and tells you how sinful you are. You remember Jesus Christ on the cross died for you. Hung, nailed on the cross to bear all your sin and all your guilt. And rose again on the third day in order to declare that payment has already been paid. How should you live? What should we tell the philosophers? How should we live our lives? Let me tell you how we should live our lives. Willingly carrying your cross. Denying yourself. Joyfully following Christ wherever he takes you. However long, no matter the price you pay. Always eager. Looking for his return. Brothers, if you are full of Christ and you're growing in that fullness, continually growing, if you're overflowing with Jesus Christ, brothers, the philosophies of our age will bear no influence over your life. If you are full of him, How in the world will you ever want anything else? So I call upon us, all of us, including myself, find all life questions found in Jesus Christ. Open your mind and your heart to him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, while it's hard and rough road to pursue the philosophy of this world, so many things to memorize and so much work to be done, what a loving God you are to make it so simple that the right and the best alternative is to humbly coming to Jesus Christ who is the answer to all questions of life. May we continue to grow in our knowledge of Him. May we use our logic only in Him and not outside of Him 
in Jesus' name. Amen.